0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I wonder if we might begin a little bit differently this morning and start with the end. Because here we are at the end of the epistle to First Peter, or the First Peter's epistle to the believers in Asia Minor. And he, he's concluding this epistle. And listen to how he wraps it up. He says, by Silvanus, in verse 12, A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. See, Peter does a few th- different things. Peter does a few different things here. He starts off, he's saying, this is by Sylvanus. he's this guy, he's kind of my secretary, he's writing this thing out. He says, hi, I'm writing from Babylon, which isn't really Babylon, it's Rome. Uh, but at the end, he says what's most important, Peter calls us to stand in God's true grace. As he closes up his epistle, the most important thing that he can put our hands on is that we would stand firm in the grace of God. You know, we were at the ocean a couple weeks ago, and, and I tried to stand there firm and, and, and just having your feet in the water as the sand is kind of washing out from underneath your feet and under, between your toes. And it's an interesting thing. When you try to shut your eyes, you can find yourself kind of losing your equilibrium, losing your balance as you stand there. It's this weird thing. Your inner ear knows what balance is and it knows everything. But as your feet are experiencing the washing of the water and as your toes are seeing, feeling that sand kind of wash out from underneath your feet, uh, your senses kind of start to question themselves and you start to kind of lose your equilibrium, as it were. And suddenly, our body's falling over and we look like an idiot there in the ocean, falling over for no good reason. See, sometimes I wonder if we st- fail to stand in our Christian faith because we've questioned those things that are most trustworthy. Because we've questioned those things that are most true, that are most uh, right and good. We've, we've learned to kind of walk away from those things, and we're trying to trust our senses rather than trust what we know to be right. Here's our big idea this morning. God will graciously exalt those who humbly trust Him. You believe that this morning? No matter what the world throws at you, no matter what life brings to your doorstep, God will graciously exalt those who humbly trust Him. And I'm going to see this in three different phases in our passage. First, we are to humble ourselves so that we can be exalted in verses six through seven. And then in verses eight through nine, we're to be sober-minded so the devil doesn't destroy us. And then finally, verses 10 through 11, that the God of dominion will establish those who are faithful, who retain their faith. See, I wonder if we wouldn't have a more pressing word this morning given to us, given the the light of everything that's happened in the last two years, the, the pressures that we feel on our souls and in our lives, what would be more pertinent than for us to be called to stand firm in God's grace? And so as we dig into 1 Peter chapter 5, I expect that the Lord has a word for us in his scriptures, that the Lord wants to speak to our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our desires so that he would shape and form us. So here we go. Verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves so you can be exalted. Look at First Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, before we get too far, we want to remember that what Peter has just told us in the last section, remember in verses one through five, he's got this call to elders and he's got this call to the younger. And then he sums it up in verse five and he's calling all of us to humility. And he's saying, but God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is a quotation from the Proverbs. And what we have in front of us here this morning is likely an exposition from that passage as Peter's kind of unpacking the fullness of what that means. God is going to oppose those who are proud, but what does it mean for us to walk in humility? What does it mean for us to receive grace as we put on humility in Christ? Peter wants to draw this out for us. The first thing he says is that God's hand is mighty to exalt. See, our proper humility is under God's mighty hand. That's what he says there in verse six, right? If you're familiar with the work of Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan uh, was kind of an atheistic kind of science science person. That makes me sound less intelligent when I say it that way. He's a science guy, not Bill Nye. He's a different one, right? Carl Sagan was this philosopher, this uh, scientist, and he wanted to to bring about humility by decentralizing man. And so he would walk through this exercise where he would say, "We, we once thought we were the center of the universe, and then Galileo misproved that, disproved that. And then we thought, well, our sun is the center of the galaxy, and so we are still at the center of things, kind of, sort of. But then in the 1900s, our telescopes and everything else kind of disproved that. See, while everything he said is true, it will never produce true humility for us, because it still focuses on me and I and who I am and where I fit into the universe, What Peter is doing here is he's trying to bring about humility by taking us out of the center of the universe and centering God in in that place. We are to uh, humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And the purpose of this humiliation is God's exaltation. Look at the conjunction. We often miss the conjunctions that are presented to us in Scripture. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. See, we humble ourselves for the purpose of God's exaltation. And just as Peter just finished saying God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we are to position ourselves in humility so that God can bring the grace of exaltation. Verse 7, he says that we express our humility in how we handle our anxiety. And so Peter wants to take us into the lab of faith. He wants to say, well, what does this faith mean? How does it actually play out? In verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He continues with this participial phrase, and he's saying, we cast our cares as an expression of our humility before God and Jesus Christ. And this is not new to the New Testament We see it in Philippians 4, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 6 I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, the term casting here is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used when Jesus throws his cloak on a donkey. It's the idea of throwing your weight or the weight of something fully on another that they would bear that burden for you. When we cast our cares upon the broad shoulders of our God, Jesus, He's capable. He's willing. When I was in high school, I used to bust tables. And I started as a 15-year-old. I was tiny and frail and not that different from right now, I guess, as some of you laugh. Thank you. For that, I was 15 years old, and this, this waitress comes to me, and she says, hey, there's a really full tray of dishes in the back, and I need you to come, and I need you to pick up. So I get there, and I, I'm telling you, it's like just as massive. They've stacked it high and deep and wide, and I thought, there's no way in the world I can lift this, but the girl was kind of cute. And so there I was in a compromised position, and I said, no, no, I'll take care of it. She said, no, oh, I'll go get somebody else. I said, no, I got it. So I bent down and and I tried to put it on my shoulder and I tried to stand up and I couldn't get above a certain height and I just fell backwards, you know. See, our anxiety is caused by our stubborn refusal to admit there are things too big for us to handle. Our anxieties are caused when we don't hand things over to someone who's capable to handle those things that we ourselves can't. Notice the foundation of all of this at the end of verse 7. See, we can cast our anxieties on Him because God cares for us. Peter uses another conjunction to show us the relationship. It's because God cares for us that we can hand Him our anxieties. It's because God is one who is loving and kind and generous toward us. And we can trust him with it. Now, some of us in our circles, some of us in our, our tribe, our theological tribe, we, we kind of shy away from talking about a caring, loving God. But right here, Peter invites us to this, to, to put our arms around this and say, God is one who loves and cares for his people, and that's how we approach him. We might shy away from this and say, oh, that's, that's soft theology, that's fuzzy, but here, right here in this passage, Peter is inviting us to consider the care of God that was mainly expressed in Jesus Christ. See, the foundation of our love is the care that God has given us. And the foundation of our prayer, prayerfulness is a loving God. See, we should feel His welcome in prayer because we felt His invitation and love at Calvary, right? We might step away from these verses and say our prayerfulness reveals our humility or lack thereof. When we are expressing our hearts before a kind and loving and generous God, it kind of brings about a state of humility in our hearts. But when the opposite is true and we're not expressing ourselves in prayerfulness, in bringing our our, our anxieties to our God, it shows a a sign of pride that exists in our hearts. If I were to be honest with us this morning, I'm a bit nervous for us in this, and I include myself in this criticism. It's just basically this: do we pray? Are we people of prayer at Gospel community church? I mean, we've got rich theology, we've got rich biblical teaching, we've got all of this stuff, we've got great community, we've got all of these things, but are we a people of prayer? Am I a person of prayer? And I'll say, as I see our patterns, as I see our monthly prayer nights, and it's basically three people gathering in a room, and I'm not even consistent. As I see and I talk with you and I I hear about what's going on in your life, most often it has to do with the thing you're reading or the podcast you're listening to, but never how you're praying. I think we have a, a way for us to grow here and to see it translate in rich humility before our God. See, I wonder often if we're content to be prayerless because we think we're too busy to pray. And what Peter's inviting us to is is a recognition that we're not too busy to pray. It's we're too proud to pray. I was listening to a podcast earlier last week. And this uh, person was talking about how, how is it that we've had all of this kind of uh, return to the gospel and theology, and we've had all of this great preaching and all of these movements that have happened, huge churches happening, but, but we haven't seen like large-scale revival happen. How have we not seen that? And this other person just spoke up and he said, we've never seen a call to prayerfulness. We've seen these massive recoveries of theology, return to the Scripture, return to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ at, at the center of our theology. We've seen all of this growth and all of this health, but we've never seen prayerfulness pushed upon our people. See, we pray when we believe that our situation is beyond our control. See, our prayer is is a pushing away from our self-reliance. It's an acknowledgement that I'm not capable to address the things that are in my life, that I just fundamentally don't have the ability. I love what John Piper writes, and it's on the screen in front of us. He wrote a a book about mission called Let the Nations Be Glad. And Micah, if you want to pull that up for us, Piper says this, Probably the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Until we know that we're in a battle, until we know that we're stuck in this wartime mentality, we won't pray correctly. And he goes on to say, it's like we, we use the prayer time walkie talkie to, to hone in to God. When we misuse it, it's like we want to call the butler to bring more bread. funny because this is exactly where Peter pivots to next. He also wants us to see the potential cost of not living in humility. In verses 8 and 9, he's calling us to a sober-mindedness so that the devil doesn't destroy us. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Risk, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that he, uh, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout all the world. The first thing he says is that we are to guard against a fearful enemy. Verse 8. Many of us, we live like we have no adversary. Remember when I would run track, which again was a long time ago, right? And I wasn't running to beat anyone because I wasn't good enough. I was running to beat my own times. Many of us live our Christian life that way. We're not trying to to live in relation to some opposition. We're trying to just run to make ourselves better. We think of the claims of Christianity as essentially helping us become a better version of ourselves. Sin's not reaching your full potential. Grace and redemption are found in living up to our goals and standards. But Peter lives in this enchanted world that he's inviting us to that we seem to have forgotten. A world complete with souls and demons and angels and effective prayer and all of these kind of realities that exist around us. And here, he tunes us into this reality that we have an adversary. Notice how he describes this adversary. This adversary prowls around. That is, Satan is moving about. He's not content with yesterday's kill. He doesn't wait for the prey to come to him. He is in pursuit. Now, we need to talk about this for a little bit, right? Just... Clear this up. I have no reason to believe that Satan is omnipresent. We kind of attribute that to him sometimes, don't we? He's localized. He's a person who's in a place at a time. uh, That's what he is. He's not like God in this way. The idea that the devil is himself tempting us may or may not be true, but the machinations of Satan, his worldly wisdom and fleshly desire, those things that he's brought into the world, those are the things that we see most often, right? The flesh... James tells us, is the, the course of so much of our temptation. So he prowls around. He's the one who's pursuing his prey. The second thing he tells us is that he devours. Now, how does Satan devour? It's worth noting that Peter follows this phrase in, chapter, or in verse 8. In verse 9, he calls us to be firm in our faith. It's the evil one who um, Jesus says in Matthew 13 that comes to steal and destroy. He snatches away what has been sown in the heart, the gospel. It's Satan who blinds the minds of the unbelieving in Second Corinthians 4. It's also worth noting that this devouring is somehow tied to, to suffering. Remember, Peter's been writing all about suffering throughout this letter, and he's going to bring it up here again in this context. See, it seems what Peter is saying is that we are devoured by Satan when we abandon the faith amidst our difficulty, when we kind of walk away from genuine Christianity, faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, when we walk away from that because there's too much suffering or too much going on in our life. And certainly there's no shortage of those names that we think of. We've seen just this melee of the saints recently. Think of the likes of Joshua Harris, who was a pastor who's wrote, written many books. Some of us have read those books. Walked away from the faith, what, two years ago? On a more popular level, the YouTubers, Rhett and Link, it's been kind of publicized how they've walked away from the faith. See, the truth is that uh, we leave the faith when we, we never had it, when it was never really genuine, because genuine faith perseveres. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. And so what we see is those people who have false conversion experiences kind of abandoning or leaving the faith. And, and we see the destruction that's happening so often. But I wonder if Peter's kind of addressing something a little bit differently here. He tells us in verse 9 that we should resist the devil as others have done. Now, how does he say to do that? With, with faith. Resist him. Firm in your faith. He, we resist Satan's plans to devour us by staying true to the faith, once for all handed down to the saints. And Paul says the same thing. He he finishes his epistle to the Ephesians and he tells them to put on this armor of God that they might stand against their true enemy, which isn't the, the person they disagree with, or the politician, or or the Jew, or whoever else it was. The, the true enemy that they were dealing with was the powers and authorities. And when he says we take up our stand against them, he calls us to put on the shield of faith to distinguish the arts or the darts of the evil one. In fact, brothers and sisters around the globe, throughout history, have been standing firm in their faith. Think about that for just a second. For 2,000 years, brothers and sisters in Christ have been standing firm in their faith, not abandoning. Even at the threat of loss of their life, they have been true to the one gospel. So you and I can do the same. So, I wonder if our view of Satan actually reveals our lack of humility. We have a fairy tale vision of who Satan is, don't we? It's not really popular in modern circles to bring up the reality of Satan or who he is. It was uh, back in medieval times where uh, they would host these kind of Christian festivals in keeping with the Christian calendar. And what they would do is they would actually dress up and mock the devil. They would put on like tight red clothes and horns and have a little tail. That's where our modern picture of Satan came from. We have this picture today of of Satan who's sitting on our right shoulder while the angel's on our left shoulder. and, And he's got the red garb with the pointy tail and the horns and whatnot. I don't think that really lines up with reality. See, our modern enlightened sensibilities make belief in Satan a matter of ignorance. And it's a shameful thing for us to actually speak up and say, we believe that there is an adversary who desires to destroy us or make us absolutely ineffective. But speaking openly about Satan is a sign of belief. Belief. Peter's opening call to humility and verse 8's call to be watchful are reasonable behaviors when you believe what he says to be true. If Satan is really prowling around looking for someone to destroy, we need to be watchful. We need to be speaking about this individual. See, I believe in a real individual named Satan. This Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden by these words. He said, did God really say? And he's been doing the same thing for 2,000 years. Deceiving. But Peter's last phrase here might be his most important. See, he's called us to have a genuine humil- humility as we... We are to put on that action. He's made us aware of this adversary, the devil, and now he wants to turn our eyes to who God is. Look with me at verses 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever amen see after suffering comes grace after suffering comes grace see our suffering isn't to be relieved immediately in fact uh, the word that peter uses here while it's it's actually supplied by the translator and so he's he's saying when you experience just a little bit of suffering it's not even temporal it's it's about the amount of suffering when you've received a little bit of suffering, that's when the God of grace steps in. And Peter invites us to consider this God of grace. He describes him, first of all, with that very phrase, the God of all grace. There is no true grace to be found outside of relationship to Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered that? There's, there's no grace to be received outside of what God has given to us in Christ. This God of grace has has called us to His eternal glory in Christ. That is, it glorifies God when we come to faith in Jesus. God receives honor and glory as he is capable of saving us. And look at the outcome. When we stay true to this faith, verse 10 spells out the outcome for us. It says that the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. So the outcomes are restoration, confirmation, strengthening, strengthening, establishment. Truthfully, this might happen right here, right now. It might actually come about in our life that you go through a period of suffering and then God just kind of turns the tables, and and that might actually happen. We've seen that in the lives of of like Mordecai in the book of Esther, right? If you remember the story of Esther, uh, Mordecai is this. uncle of Esther, and and he is kind of put on trial by this wicked man, Haman. And, And God brings about a turning of the table so that Haman is hung on the gallows meant for Mordecai, and Mordecai sits in the chair that was meant for Haman. See, God sometimes reverses those purposes, and we bring about this restoration and this righting of wrongs. And that might happen. That might be what Peter's speaking about here. But we know with finality, at the end of time, that these things will all be true in Christ for us. We We'll be restored. We will be restored. Not to your 20-year-old self. You're going to be restored to who you were in the Garden of Eden when you walked with God in the cool of the day. We'll be restored. You'll be confirmed. He'll, he'll lift you up, set your feet on the rock. He will say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Oh, excuse me, that's not right. Well done, good and faithful. He says that about his Son, Jesus Sorry, there was a bypassing of the circuits up there somewhere. What He says to us is He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll confirm us. He'll strengthen us. He'll bring it to us this glorified body that will no longer be beset with sin, beset with weakness, beset with with maladies and, and all of these things that we deal with in our humanity. He'll establish us forever in His presence. See, the Christian who endures suffering and guards his faith and stays true to the faith will be fully established at the coming of Christ. That's what we look forward to, right? That's how we stand firm in the grace that we recognize that someday God will bring about this true salvation. By the way, didn't Jesus go through the same path? Jesus suffered and was exalted. Jesus faced our adversary in a series of temptations that we we saw in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that? First, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And Satan shows up and says, hey, why don't you just make these stones into bread? Jesus, recognizing that's not what the Father would have for him to do, he he responds and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Second, he He tempts him to throw himself down from the precipice of the temple. And third, Satan calls him to just bow down and worship him so that he might have all the kingdoms of the earth to himself. And of course, Jesus stood the test. Jesus stood firm in his righteousness. He was brought into the wasteland, starved and tempted by the inventor of lies. But he was always mindful of his father and resisted. The temptation. Look at verse 11 with me. He'll confirm, he'll restore, he'll confirm, he'll strengthen, he'll establish. But to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's that mean? What's dominion all about? Here we have this defeated enemy, right? This adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but Peter's reminding us that there's one who has true dominion. That Jesus, when He came and He laid down His life and was resurrected, He defeated all rule and authorities and powers. There's nothing that's not subject to Him right now. And right now, what's happening is all the enemies are being gathered up. And someday when Christ returns, He will establish His kingdom in full. Do you believe that this morning, that Jesus Christ has full dominion over everything? And he rules and reigns from his throne. That as he was resurrected, as as he was going up in in his ascension to the heavens, he he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Is that your affirmation this morning? Because if that's true, I, I don't really have to worry about this adversary. I have to be watchful. I have to be awake, and I don't have to worry. The fullness of grace is at our disposal. See, we humble ourselves because there is only one who can have true dominion. See, just as Satan is not in living in humility right now, he's living as an adversary, living in rebellion against the dominion of God in Christ. We ourselves have a choice in front of us to embrace true humility. Do we want to submit ourselves to the God of dominion, or do we want to continue to be Lord, continue to embrace our pride before his throne? See, by his resurrection, by Jesus' resurrection, he has established his dominion for all time. In humbling ourselves, we push away from Satan's rebellion and we put our arms around the dominion of Jesus Christ. So here's the question for us this morning Are you proud? Are you a person that's marked by pride? Yesterday, I was doing some work in the yard. And we have this tree that I've just ignored for like two years. I've just acted like it doesn't exist in my yard, right? And you can imagine then that it's all overgrown. It looks like something out of a Disney movie or something. It's all gnarly and twisted. Like You don't want to eat anything that comes off this tree, Right? So this tree is overgrown. It's too many branches. And some branches, it was so thick inside. Some branches actually uh, went down toward the ground. And, and in this, this exercise in futility to try and get out into the light. And there were these creatures living in it. There's all kinds of spider webs and everything else. And I'm kind of trying to cut everything away because you just don't know what's been inside there. And what's notable, though, is on the outside, it was green. I mean, it looked like a healthy, vibrant tree. But when I stripped away all of this dead growth on the inside, it was brown. And all of the the branches and everything else were leafless. See, some of us in our pride are are trying to grow in all the wrong ways. We we've got branches growing in different directions. We've got all of this stuff that looks like vibrancy on the outside, but when you strip away all of the all of the unhealth of it all, there's just something brown and dead on the inside. See, on the inside, there's so much dead growth. There's so much just contradiction and convolution that it's just hard to kind of strip it all away and see the tree for what it is. And I'm here today to tell us that, that the grace of God wants to strip away all of that false growth, all of that deadness, and bring about life in Christ. He wants to take away all of that self-reliance, all of that prayerlessness, all of that anxiety that exists inside of us, and he wants to replace it with humility of a rhythm of submission to him, of trust in him. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid for us. I'm afraid for myself at times that, that we just embrace these patterns of, of knowledge and knowing, and, and we just, our heads get ever bigger while our bodies are just atrophied. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, not actually speaking. None of you have big heads anyway. Well, some of you have big heads. The recognition is that we are people who are called to to live in a constant rhythm with our God. And some of us put on the motions, okay, we come here and we put on a smiling face and we go about our week and we do our things, but we don't actually live in a, a, a submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in regularity. We, we put on seasons of prayer and seasons of study and seasons of growth, but we don't live in this constant reliance upon Christ and His goodness. You feel like that? Maybe this morning, God's invitation to us this morning is to come to recognize that we are poor, wretched, blind, and naked, and to come to Christ and recognize that we ourselves are in need of God's grace today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, that we ourselves need renewal and resurrection with Jesus. See, if we're to stand firm in God's grace, can I just suggest that you can't do that on your own? If we started in grace by faith, through Christ alone, by faith alone, why should we for one minute think that we can continue in grace without God's help? That we can continue in our faith without God's work in us? See, this morning Peter gives us two signifiers of our pride. He says first that our prayerlessness exposes our our proud existence before God. And when we go sometimes days or weeks without any kind of meaningful life of prayer, that is an expression of our pride. We're proud when we underestimate our adversary, the devil. We're proud when we think we can go about this life and, and not be devoured. Maybe it's time for us to start to consider sinful pride that exists in so many cracks and crevices of our supposedly good Christian life. I want to pray this morning that God brings about a purity in his people. Starting with us, starting with me, and we put on these patterns of prayerfulness and mindfulness in Christ so that he would exalt his name in our midst. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess confess my own pattern of prayerlessness this morning. I confess that I'm one that hasn't spoken of my adversary with fear. So Lord, break us down. Allow us to see the existence of our pride, of our lack of humility before You. And make us truly humble. Father, I anticipate that when we embrace true humility at the foot of the cross, that we'll be met with grace. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So Lord, help us to put on humility that we might find grace. Grace. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.